0: Welcome to Melbourne Recital Centre's Sound Escapes podcast, I'm Kat McGoran. In this podcast, we explore how music is helping people recover from trauma, with special guests James Richmond, a clinical psychologist and percussionist, Michael Mosley, who is part of James's Drumming Circle, and our final guest is Samantha Diekman, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Melbourne, who is looking at how music is used in forced migrant communities to deal with trauma and build social connections. Here's James with his explanation of post-traumatic stress disorder to start us off.
1: A lot of people talk about trauma and experience things that they, that they feel is traumatic, but in psychology when we talk about clinical levels of trauma, we're talking about something that affects your whole life. It's the kind of event where you are in serious fear for your life, or in fact you see someone you you witness someone die, or or you're in a situation where where people die, and that can manifest in a way after the the trauma where you know you re-experience that trauma as if it's actually happening again. So these are vivid, you know, kind of catastrophic emotions that will cause people to you know drop to the ground in out, out of fear. It's it's activating the the fight or flight response in the extreme, as if you are again in um, in in mortal danger. Um, and so you can imagine how debilitating that would be in the, in daily life. And so in psychology, when we when we talk about a clinical level of trauma, it's something that actually is is so significant that it's impacting on your daily functioning, so that you can't, you know, maybe work or it's affecting your your social relationships, your family relationships. And without going into all of the the details, post traumatic stress disorder really does affect people, you know, across the board. Um, It's one of the most debilitating psychological disorders.
0: What impact does music have or where does music fit into this process of helping people to deal with traumatic emotions?
1: That's a really good question and I'd have to say that the research literature doesn't have a great answer to that question. Having said that, the research that we're doing at the, the Clinical and Music Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Melbourne is uncovering some pretty promising mechanisms that could be at work. And indeed, that's, that's my primary motivator as a, a music educator and now a clinical psychologist, is to really target those clinical mechanisms. We're currently gathering data on this. Um, and I have some, some exciting hypotheses and, and the data's looking good. But until we publish, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, you can't actually sort of make claims particularly. But what I will say is that the groups I've been working with are showing, you know, fantastic results. The kind of anecdotal reports that they're offering, the observation of, of the pleasure and, and the camaraderie and the well-being that's being elicited through this activity is really encouraging. So we're pretty hopeful that, this, that these programs and the research that's going on will lead to some pretty groundbreaking publications.
0: Do you have any insight, and again, I'm just purely happy to hear anecdotal evidence or just <laughs> even what you, your, your instinct tells you, why drumming over other instruments, for example?
1: Well, um, other instruments, you know, playing other musical instruments and indeed singing in choirs can be very beneficial. The reason I'm focusing on drumming is not because I'm a percussionist, but because one of the barriers to people taking up music is that they think it's going to be too hard. Um, and with drumming, you can make a sound from day one. You can hit the drum and experience this, that that reaction. And you can start with very simple rhythms, and you can uh, our program kind of tailors the structure so that people of all different abilities can, can be making music from day one. So we feel that drumming is... A really great way to access the benefits of musical participation, without the impediments of it'll be too hard or i um, tone deaf for you know some of those things that unfortunately stop a lot of people from continuing with music in in their adult lives. People think that it's a gift that you either have or don't have. Well, we know that's a myth. Now we've kind of proven that in the disproven that in the music psychology literature um, that you know while some people have more or less of a of a propensity, it's just doing it that makes you get better. The other potential barrier that people face when they when they kind of consider music participation is, oh, it's too hard. It will take me years to make a decent sound. Like you know, playing the violin or the or the flute, trumpet it takes ages. You know, people experience all sorts of awful screeches and sounds to, to get started. But with drumming. And this is coming from a classically trained percussionist. You just hit it. Now, obviously, there's, you know, there's principal percussion with the Melbourne Symphony hitting and then there's, you know, my son, and there's going to be a difference. But the thing is, you both experience a sound and you're activating the instrument. It's working. So I think drumming is a great vehicle for for people to access music participation, to, to, to make music, because the barrier of technical proficiency just really doesn't need to be there. And you don't need to do 10,000 or 20,000 hours. Yeah. Just do one, just do two. Any hour you spend playing music is going to be beneficial and enjoyable. And so I think putting performers up on a pedestal of being, well, if I can't be that, then there's no point doing it, is really missing the point of music. You know, in non-Western cultures, music is a part of everyday life. It's something that that, that the youngest children will sit alongside their grandparents and in and, and the circle and just watch and join in and... It's, it's an integral part of life, and I suspect that we are poorer for it not being in ours to the same degree.
0: But is there a difference between listening to music and playing music yourself? Well, according to the research, yes, there is.
1: What, what, um, what we're basically saying is that listening to music does, you know, they say, set off fireworks in the brain. You know, it's activating the brain across multiple regions, more so than pretty much any other activity that we that we have, have tested. Playing sport, reading, doing maths. So that's great in itself and uh, and we know that listening to music can have some some really great effects, great positive effects on people, but when you're actually actively making music, participating, playing music, it's even greater the effect, just just significantly greater. One of the reasons we think is because you know you've got the whole physical movement, so your whole your motor cortex, the, the part of your brain that that activates your your movement is is highly active in this um, when you when you're making music, but also you're integrating information from other musicians and uh, integrating that with your own music that you're making. Um, you've got to align and synchronize. So there's this kind of rapid error correction, anticipation, prediction, uh, adjustment, cognitively, orally, and then physically. I mean, it's it's a a highly... I mean, it's like piloting a fighter jet, I would imagine. I mean, you're literally operating at kind of, you know, high capacity on multiple domains of of operation.
0: Is there any type of music that works better than others?
1: Oh, death metal, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it gets
0: the rage out. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good
1: question. What I do know is that musical memories are very personal, so everyone has different associations and... And one of the reasons music is so powerful um, in working with people with dementia is because those memories are laid down far, far back in people's history. They're laid down so strongly through the musical component that, that they can be retrieved even when people, people's memory is failing in other domains. Those musical memories are so strongly stored and everyone's are different so you know in selecting music for people to perhaps you know for example in in music therapy it's a very personal approach and that's why one-to-one music therapy is is a thing because the songs that will activate positive emotions for you may not necessarily work for me and in fact there's some amazing research by um, Robert Sartore's lab into what's called the chills which is basically this amazing effect when you when you hear a piece of music that, for you, it's, it's, it's one of your absolute favourites and there might be a certain point in that piece that you just get this amazing kind of goosebumps, chills down your spine. You know, researchers have studied the physiological reactions. It's, it's up there with orgasms. You know, I kid you not. But what is so amazing is that when they did this study, let's say the piece that gave you the chills, they played it to me, for example, and no reaction. Wow. And, and vice versa. The one that gives me the chills doesn't do a thing for you so it's it's not an inherent quality of the music it's the personal kind of autobiographical musical memory.
0: Michael Mosley is an avid music lover and an Anglican lay minister. He's also part of a drumming group that James runs for Vietnam veterans called the Kokoda Drummers. Like many Vietnam veterans, Michael was diagnosed with PTSD and depression in his 50s, and he describes the condition as a wounding of the human soul. I caught up with Michael at the launch of the Kokoda Drummers CD, and he explained to me the impact that drumming and the group has had on his life.
2: Well, I, I think it's very much akin to the process of meditation because it becomes, it's not a matter of what you do here when you, when you sort of unearth your basic rhythm which which you probably have always had but never expressed it quite oh, so overtly. But it, you also take it with you when you leave because it works subconsciously. And like meditation, you don't always know it's actually happening for you until you start to realize, now, that's interesting. I wouldn't have, I, I would have reacted in a different way in the sense of I'm calmer now in a, in a situation. So you, it's more than just playing the bongos here. It's what, what you take away with you. Which, which is like meditation, in my view.
0: What was your musical background, Michael, before you were involved with the drumming group?
2: N- none whatsoever, apart from being a, an avid listener and a lover of all forms of music. So I've always had a, a sense of rhythm. I've played drums would be bashing my fingers on, on a desk to Creedence Clearwater Revival.
0: Or well, the steering wheel of the car. <laughs> or the steering yeah. wheel of the car, yeah. <laughs>
2: Exactly. <laughs> That's about it, Yeah,
0: yes. I think it kind of goes to that idea that we all have music is so, I don't know, ingrained in Ingrid, us somewhere. Yes. Yes. And it seems like pulling it out has really had quite a huge impact.
2: Oh, look, it certainly has. And to actually be able to express it is, is really very powerful because you then find that you're listening to music differently, you're picking up on rhythms that you may not have really been aware of before, and if, if you want, it, it, you can actually bring it along if you feel, sometimes I get anxiety attacks, so I, I can then try to bring in some form of rhythm and use it as a circuit breaker, and as a calming mechanism, because we still all, in different ways, have, have sort of flashbacks, or whatever you might like to call them, so this is another aid to help us snap, snap that nexus. And it's same as meditation, I see the two very parallel because I, you know, I lead a meditation group, had done for many.
0: And what does that mean for you when you say in those moments that you bring, you call on some kind of rhythmic thing? Do you start playing or do you listen or it just in your head and you
2: go through it mentally? Yeah, I mean, a bit of all of it. Yeah. all of that, and the important thing is you, you stop the anxiety process and you then start to unwind it, or if you like, to, re- to rewire it in, in that in that sense, which is very true, very, mm. very, very true. So it, it doesn't necessarily stop you from going into those moments, but it really helps you stabilise them and come out of them again, and that becomes almost intuitive.
0: And what sort of changes have you noticed in your fellow bandmates, I guess you'd call them? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh no, I wouldn't call them that. Yeah. <laughs> Retrobates, perhaps. <Yeah. laughs> well, it, it, it's a bonding, you know, and, and it, it, there's a lot of, I mean, with the veterans down here, there's a lot of caring for each other. Uh, so this is a, just another manifestation of how we can really support each other. Uh, we have a lot of fun, we have a lot of black humour, and no one takes us too seriously. But this is another way of helping comfort at times and just being with somebody because you can get a sense that their might be struggling a bit, but so this is something else we can bring to help that. That
0: really taps into the significance of the communities that are created around
2: music as well. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it is. It, it, it's the bonding around around that music and the camaraderie. Uh, it's another, another venue for that camaraderie to sort of grow and to foster. Uh, oh, it's very, very important. Very powerful.
0: Music is also being used to help forced migrants deal with the trauma of their experiences. Samantha Diekman is a researcher with the ARC Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions and over the last year has been working with forced migrants. She has observed the way people use music in their everyday lives and has discovered that music is helping, especially in situations when clinical treatments don't suit people's cultural needs. Those those models are very powerful um,
3: and that psychiatric and clinical way of addressing PTSD symptoms it can be useful for people from all backgrounds, including forced migrants. However, there's been work done in this area in psychology, in social and cultural psychology and in community development. And Peter Westerby is someone who I could mention who people could follow up on to look more into this. And these scholars have found that communities are reporting to them that this model does not address their experiences of what they've gone through because it's very individualistic. So it's treating symptoms or it's treating an individual issue rather than taking into account the level of disorientation that occurs with any kind of migration, but then on top of that, for forced migration, a migration that you haven't wanted to undertake. So there's a level of disorientation that happens there because it's not just a life-changing event that's happened to create trauma in you, a medical trauma. But in fact, it's your entire community has been moved, forcibly moved, and you've been geographically displaced. Your culture itself is undertaking a level of disorientation. The very reference points that you use for your behaviour, whether it's everyday behaviour or whether it's, um, you know, behaviour around more specific things um, in terms of life cycle events, whether it be, you know, should I be looking this person in the eye if they're an authority to me or whether it be the way that a husband and wife can expect to behave in a relationship or the way that a child is supposed to behave with their parent. So there's a level of cultural disorientation that spans across families, communities and generations that also needs to be addressed, which this clinical psychiatric model doesn't take into account. Um, And it's, it's specific to this type of dislocation. And of course, on top of that is the fact that for many of uh, these people, they may come from cultures which in the first place are more collectivist in nature. By that I mean they're not even before moving, even before migration, even war aside. Their un- understanding of their sense of self is communally and socially based So to sit in a room and try to address trauma in a clinical way is not uh, necessarily going to help someone who sees themselves as really part of a whole unit. And the sort of metaphor I use where I see myself as an individual unit of identity, someone who's more collectivist in thinking might see themselves as a single thread in a tapestry where the tapestry represents their notion of their Self. And so to just address that individual thread is not going to really relate to what their understanding is of what they're going through and what their community is going through in that level
0: of disorientation. And because music is also connected to place, it can play an important role in the lives of forced migrants in different ways. Because it's so important in
3: identity and also in place. I think that's where the displacement element of forced migration can really be addressed by music on a number of levels, whether it be the everyday use of music by um, sort of habitual uh, ways of using music, whether it be the way you sing to your child and and sort of connect with your own sense of identity and self and heritage through that and the the generations before you, whether it, I, I have people tell me how music is just such a big part of their everyday culture, they sing when they do the dishes, they sing, you know, and it, when their baby takes a first step, there's a particular song to do with that. So there's certain rituals and cultures and traditions that they can reinscribe in their new environment through music and and try and feel a sense of comfort there. Then there's also the power of music to bring people together. Um, So, you know, often we can look at groups or communities of people who've come from a certain country as being all one group, one single entity, uh, when in fact there may be, you know, multiple languages, religions, ethnicities, tribal groups that are represented by what we're seeing as a single group. And so music can play a part in, you know, developing a sense of community amongst such difference, especially where that community may have been experiencing war. And in fact, the very conflict from which they're fleeing is what divides them. And music can help to address that and bridge that
0: gap as well. In the context of music making and even using music to connect with audiences, who aren't from the community um, or sharing a different side of that culture with people who have been living in Australia for a long time or people who just simply aren't from that background.
3: Absolutely, and that's another way that music is so powerful in that social sense. There's so many people talk about music being a language that everyone can understand and obviously there's a lot of you know problems by just just saying that but it doesn't matter what language i'm singing in the melody is something that might touch you emotionally and the emotion in a song or in a piece can be communicated without words uh, or at, without words that you might understand so certainly music has been a vehicle through which individuals and communities from forced migrant backgrounds have been able to communicate what they've been through, have been able to talk about how that's not all they are and how they can help people from the receiving society, whether that be in Australia or wherever, to understand that, in fact... They are more than just the war that they came from or the conflict that they're associated with. And in fact, there's so much beauty and richness in their traditions that can in fact contribute so much to the society that they've
0: come to find themselves in. Thanks for listening to Melbourne Recital Centre's Escapes podcast on music and trauma recovery. For more information, related news, stories and events, visit melbournerecital.com.au. I'm Kat McGarren. Till next time.